Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. Though you've gone away this morning, you'll be back again tonight. Telling me there'll be no next time if I just don't treat you right. You'll never leave me, and you know it's true. Cause you like me too much, and I like you. You've tried before to leave me, but you haven't got the nerve to walk out and make me lonely, which is all that I deserve. You'll never leave me. Cause you like me too much and I like you I really do And it's nice when you believe me If you leave me I will follow you and bring you back where you belong Cause I couldn't really stand it I'd admit that I was wrong I wouldn't let you leave me cause it's true Cause you like me too much and I like you Hello and welcome to One Sweet Dream. I am your host, Diana Erickson, and I am again joined by Dr. Duncan Driver. This is part two of the Maureen Cleave series episode on George Harrison. As a reminder, these interviews took place in early 1966 prior to the recording of Revolver. In part one, Duncan and I explore the first half of the interview. In it, Cleef outlines some of George's defining characteristics. She paints the picture of a young man who is defiantly his own person, who is charming and original, stable and solid, uncompromising and strong-willed with an even stronger regard for his own rights. One who is an independent thinker, willing to go out on a limb for things he's interested in, and one who is concerned about the health and welfare of his fellow Beatles. Duncan and I noted his idealism, his perfectionism, and his conscientiousness that showed up throughout the profile. We observed his slightly skewed sense of self, while we also detected a frustration around how he is viewed by others. We ended the episode discussing George's keen sartorial style, and we now pick up at the point when Maureen explores his home life with Patty, as well as some of his social and political views. As always, Duncan and I will read through the entire interview, stopping to comment along the way. 
and there is also a host notes section after our discussion. So, without further delay, let's jump into the episode. Here we go. His acquaintances are as decorative as himself. George and Patty showing their young, long-haired, slender friends around the strange pink plants in the conservatory <laughs> is a happy sight of what would be period charm if it were not for the trouser suits. I love that. I love that sentence. Um, something about it just—it's so sixties, but it, it seems like. Like Isha, like as much as um, John's house is this Hansel and Gretel court of King Henry VIII, yeah, yeah. George's house seems like this enchanted woodland glade with these nymphs and dryads <laughs> kind of floating around and George as this fawn at the center playing his panpipes and trippy hippie sitar music. <laughs> and everything's slightly strange and yeah. beautiful, yeah, you know? Yeah, exactly. Everything is fade. Um, yeah, her her description is very cinematic. It really brought it to life. That you get the sense of all these thin moths, mm. beautiful, magical people. Out of them all, it is the most mystical of all the descriptions. This creates an aura for George, don't you think? Mm. Which is again why I wish we had a portrait of Paul's house, because you don't get that from his portrait. Yeah, that's right. When you think of Friar Park. It's so gothic and magical and, and it kind of reinforces George being this wizard. And Esher, it's more the modest wizard's home, you That's know? right. And you seem to be able to read a lot about the personality in where they've chosen to put themselves. Given yeah. the choice of anywhere, they chose this place. So it says something about them. And for that to be absent from the Cleve profile is uh, you feel the loss of that, don't you? Well, you do. By all accounts, Cavendish sounded pretty cool. And especially the Asher's place. I find it so interesting that that's what Paul was attracted to and found himself in. Yeah. Wimpole Street. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Paul loves Dickens. Yeah. So to me, that seems like, you know, the poor guy that all of a sudden finds himself in a rich yeah. person's house, you know, That's this eccentric right. rich person's house. It's so Dickens. Mm. And it's interesting that John's in his Hansel and Gretel house, but then he ends up in something so white and modish, the cloud-like environment of John and Yoko. Yeah. He moves out of a Hansel and Gretel house and into an art gallery. Yeah, yeah, basically, where they are the living art. That's right. <laughs> the performance art. I, I listened to something about um, Paul's house yesterday that really made me laugh, and it seems so. It seems so characteristic of Paul in some way. Um, he was talking about how he got a, a special electric mechanism that could. Um, automatically open and close the blinds in his bedroom in the 60s. And he thought it would be very James Bond and futuristic. Right, right, right. But that it, it was kind of like a, an old-fashioned Hornby train set. And it, it had this kind of really loud mechanical <laughs> clanging and it didn't work half of the time. It just really made me laugh. Something like how, nothing in Paul's house worked. <laughs> he had the latest and greatest. Nothing I know. Worked. But I think he's aware of how there's a kind of hubris to wanting to be James Bond 
And there's something endearing about the fact that the reality was quite different and he owns that reality. Oh, yeah, and, I love it. I agree. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> Actually, in, in, sorry, I keep going to center, but he talks about the fact that George has painted the outside so that when you're in the pool, it kind of looks like a psychedelic mirage. Mm. And, you know, that adds to the point there was something a little bit mystical about Isher, you know? Yeah, that's right. I want to get the house so that every little bit is pleasing, he said enthusiastically. This, he patted the modern dining room table, this was me two years ago, it'll have to go. The natural thing when you get money is that you acquire taste. I've got a lot of taste off patty. You get taste in food as well. Instead of eggs and beans and steak, you branch out into the avocado scene. I never <laughs> dreamt I would like avocado pears. I thought it was like eating bits of wax, fake pears out of a bowl. When I saw people shoving it down, now he shoves it down like the rest. <laughs> okay, first of all, I I wish the title of this was the avocado scene. That yeah, is the greatest yeah. statement. It's interesting that he uses that word pleasing. Again, I think it's like the ultimate goal is to pacify, to make George feel at ease and relaxed and at one with everything. And it reminds me of that get back moment. Whatever it is that will please you, I'll do it. Like he's trying to get Paul to get into this pacific state when he's not so kind of worked up and and you know for paul it's not being worked up it's being enthusiastic <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know what actually that's a really interesting point because you know i'm always trying to get under like what does george want and i i think that's a good observation that maybe george has anxiety and he's always trying to offset it because i sort of wonder what drove him to be so interested in meditation and, mm. you know, one of the benefits is a greater sense of calm, you know, and mm. obviously Beatlemania, George talks about the toll on his nervous system. Mm. So this idea that he's always trying to find things that are pleasing, calming, that he does meditation, that's trying to get him to this very calm space. I did notice when I was reading Hunter's book that he talks about religion and spirituality make things less confusing and, mm. and calm. And he, he makes the point that that, it sort of made things more orderly for him, I think, which suggests that they weren't, you know? Yeah. It also seems to be about the dissolution of self, like subsuming himself in something much greater than he is and finding that um, to be like a, a good thing. Yes, exactly. There's something very relaxing to George about. And again, maybe this is a bit of a reaction to Beatlemania to being in the spotlight. It's such a enormous level you know the mm. pressure the responsibility maybe george understanding that he's part of something much much greater was very relaxing to him you know was very calming yeah i agree 
what I found funny about this line was he's talking about all these sophisticated things and talks about the avocado scene. There's a little bit of cynicism Mm. and skepticism even in calling it the avocado scene as if like i'm not quite sure i'm trusting this scene because it's a thing Mm. um and then he uses the words shoving it down and i just found that again (laughs) again i found that line jarring because there's something defiantly inelegant about it you know he's talking about the avocado scene and then it's like he's trying to point out that they're no different they're shoving it down their throats you know yeah. it's like his desire to make it not refined that's right he's he, there's an accusation that this whole scene is a bit emperor's new clothesy that they, exactly. they don't realize you idiots you're shoving down bits of wax into your mouth <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing and sophisticated or refined about no. and maureen makes the point that even though he is um a little bit distrustful of this, he has actually um, joined <laughs> he the shouts scene. it down like the rest. <laughs> <laughs> he is hospitable, charming, and good company. It is his enthusiasm that is so engaging. You see why they all like George. He is proud of his house, proud of his wife. I like that she she recognizes George as being distinguished by enthusiasm, and. Again, it would be easy to think of George as someone characterized by surly dismissal of things. And you know, well, that's George him is, sometimes. Yeah, that's him yeah. sometimes. But as much, he's he's kind of this passionate enthusiast for certain things. Yes. Um, it's like Olivia says, you know, people think of George as this grumpy, unimpressed in, individual and... Um, she invented this phrase cheer down to talk about how he gets so worked up with enthusiasms <laughs> that she'd be going, okay, George, cheer down, cheer down. <laughs> yeah, so cute. Yeah, it is. You it is. don't realize how much I need you. Love you all the time and never leave you. Please come on back to me. I'm lonely as can be I need you Said you had a thing or two to tell me How was I to know you would upset me I didn't realize As I looked in your eyes You told me He and Patty have a very decided sense of style, both about their looks and about their surroundings. In this setting, George cut a curiously elegant dash, often in black velvet with his long, thin legs, his cavernous cheeks and his wild head of hair. It was George who got married in a coat of Mongolian lamb, and after the ceremony, they both came home and burnt incense. They are a modish and decorative pair. Patty is deliciously pretty, skinny and dainty with long yellow hair. She is 22, a successful model, and runs her house most capably. There seem to be an inexhaustible supply of pretty boy girls. Her sister Jenny is a model, and her younger sister Paula is the girl too much in love to eat her shredded wheat. I think I've read that paragraph out aloud two or three times already in the course of today, and every time I do it, 
I want to say pretty Bond girls, not pretty Boyd girls. So maybe that's a kind of Freudian slip on my part that I associate the Boyd sisters with an archetype that also belongs in the James Bond world. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Sisters. I've, been, I've been reading that um, John Higgs book. Right. Well, you know what? Patty could have absolutely been a Bond girl. Oh, totally. I mean, yeah. And Ringo married a Bond girl. So there you go. Yeah, I, I actually love this this paragraph because they are such a modish elegant, beautiful couple. You know, mm. they're so well physically suited to each other and they kind of coordinated their looks, you know? Yeah. And so, I mean, they just were an incredibly striking pair, but it wasn't just looks either. You know, it wasn't like Patty was just a model. Patty was as interested in all things Indian and spiritual and meditation as George. Mm. And I like the fact that he says that I've got a lot of my taste off Patty. Like, I love mm -hmm. the fact that he credits her for yeah. sort of, you know, just in the way that Paul was willing to be led by Jane Asher. George was also willing to be led by by Patty. And yeah. he gives her credit. Now, as I said earlier, we all know that George always had a unique sense of style mm. and always liked to stand out. And the fact that he wore a Mongolian lamb coat to his wedding, <laughs> I think is reflective of his own defiant sense of style. But I think it was probably refined by Patty. Yeah, this is a, you know, a very genuine and loving partnership between people. Um, we haven't got there yet. But I, I, I'm quite touched by what he says about how now they're her pots and pans. And this mm. house is a home. I think it's mm -hmm. lovely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. The fact that he married somebody who didn't grow up in the UK, that, you know, had a more sophisticated upbringing than him mm. is really, it, it's like she is very complimentary to George. To me, she absolutely increases his halo. Yeah. You know, like the brand of Patty really, really complements George's brand and makes him much more interesting, in my opinion. And, you know, it's not always that way with just a beautiful model. It's because Patty herself is interesting. Yeah, I get a slight sense from this that Cleve, as much as she admires the picture of George in his Mongolian lamb coat and his skinny black pants kind of arranged decorously in his you know, <laughs> perfect living room, as much yeah. as she admires that picture, she also would not want to live in it. I think she'd probably feel as though this is not a place that you can kind of relax and I don't know, and, and feel at home in. It's too much of a, of a perfect, perfect image. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like an editorial yeah. um, kind of Vogue magazine That's editorial right. layout, which is glamorous to look at, but intimidating. Yeah. Maybe even a little bit cold or something like, um, like you'd feel ashamed if you had to go to the toilet in this <laughs> <Yes>. house. <laughs> or eat yeah. or you know um yeah i agree it's like there's beautiful thin stylish people wandering everywhere you know it adds to the mystique of the beatles it really does it's funny in the in the hunter article he says that um <laughs> he makes the point that when he comes over patty and her sister are embroidering in one room and, and george is playing his instrument instrument in the other and he said it strangely makes the scene seem somewhat medieval that <laughs> <laughs> which she she kind of does too like there's all these beautiful maidens yeah. around george he's you plucking know. on a lute <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. But anyways, in some ways, John and Yoko together are very uh, iconic in terms of their looks together, especially in the early, late 60s and early 70s. But so were Patty and George, you know? Yeah, I'm reminded of those pictures. I think they're on honeymoon and they're both wearing, because they're on a beach somewhere, the 60s version of, you know, beach wear. And it includes these funny little Terry toweling hats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and she's so, um, the nice thing about Patty and all those shots is she's so affectionate with him. Yeah, yeah. You know? That's so true. Yeah, yeah. I, and I like the deliciously pretty. That That is what, Patty is not, um, well, she's striking, but she's not like a cold striking. There's something warm about Patty's looks. Yeah. I, yeah. I totally agree. Like there's that album cover where the photo they used, they, they, they had like a, a little beetle and they'd actually painted the back of the beetle with a Union Jack. It must have taken forever. And they placed it on her nose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she kind of screws up her face with his beetle and that's what they used as the, yeah. the cover of the album. <laughs> that's what I mean. Like as decorous as she can be, She's not afraid to to pull a bit of a face from time to time. Yeah, that, that she's pretty it, sweet. She's yeah. charming. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that she paints the picture of George being surrounded by Patty and all of her, her multiple beautiful sisters, and yet George really is a guy who pretty well has been surrounded by guys his whole life. Mm. You know, in the Beatles, and then he always seems to have his crew of dudes around him. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Like growing up in the house full of brothers as well. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Well, he had a sister, but, you know, yeah. but I'm just thinking of like, George always has the, the pythons, the and traveling head. Wilburys. Yeah, and yeah, I know what you mean. He's always got his buddies, you yeah, know? Yeah, it's so true. They give every appearance of getting on extremely well together. Patty is not only beautiful, she is also a capable and an excellent cook. Tuck in, George said in front of one of Patty's dinners. George met Patty two years ago while making a hard day's night. She had other boyfriends. Never thought I'd get her, George said. This is her background, according to him. She was born in Taunton, went to East Africa to live, and came back. Stop! Okay, so we get a little glimpse <laughs> into George's world. Never thought I'd get her. Mm. You know what I mean? It, it's kind of like the scruffy lout. The, thought the she scruffy, was out of my league. Yes, yeah. exactly. Out of my league. George's view is something like she's she's something wonderful that a, like a little scruffy little puddlian like me will never get her. Yeah, at the same time, you kind of want to say, at the time you're making a hard day's night, you are the biggest thing in the world. <laughs> Why would you exactly. think, whoa, she's so out of my league. <laughs> exactly. But I think that that really is George's self-image. I think it changes through the years. Yeah. But like we talked about at the very beginning, you know, with his line, good old George, you know, that's still a little bit in George's mind. But um, the other thing that I thought was interesting about this statement was, 
I don't know what to make of the way Cleve articulates it. Like, this is her background according to him. Mm. As in, Patty was right there. Uh, she could ask <laughs> Patty. So I didn't know if that was a little bit of a dig from Maureen saying that he told me about her. And the fact that it's very, very basic, like yeah. there's only really three main points, I thought was a little bit of a wry comment from yeah. Maureen. No, I, I quite agree that it, it includes George being summary or dismissive of Paddy's background, maybe because it's linked to the version of British Empire that he's very yes. critical of. Well, but I think he was at the same time probably attracted to the fact that she had hmm. had a more sophisticated background potentially and yeah, it yeah. makes her more worldly. But it was a little bit paternal. Mm. This is Patty's background. It, apparently, she only had three things happen. She was born, <laughs> went to Africa, and came back. So there, done. That's Patty. Yeah, you yeah. Something in the way she moves. I married her, he said, because I loved her and because I was fed up not being married. <laughs> 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 he does call a spade a spade, doesn't he? There's that lack of beautiful words again. <laughs> I was fed up not being married. Oh, George, and they say romance is dead. <laughs> it reminds me of something. Like some, I know, I'm sorry, but the line in something, as much as I truly, absolutely adore something, it's the... You're asking, You're asking me, me if will my love grow? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You stick around <laughs> and it may show. It's kind of like, George, could you just say yes? But that's it's so George, isn't it? Even his greatest love song, he's being kind of henpecked and hounded. <laughs> <laughs> and he's hedging a little bit. Like, I don't know. You stick around. That's right. So... It's like, here comes the sun. As, as beautiful and as genuinely um, uplifting as that song is, half of the lyrics are about how long and god-awful the winter was. <laughs> exactly. No, I mean, this is... Let's continue reading this, because this paragraph is pretty interesting. Sure. 22 is the normal age for people to get married. That's when a petrol pump attendant gets married, though he hasn't got all these people looking at him. So it. I find this whole... See, whole paragraph confusing and interesting. Yeah. So, you know, I married her because I loved her. That was nice. He <laughs> 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 I started well. Went downhill from there <laughs> because I was fed up with not being married. So all of a sudden it becomes basically he was impatient and needy. <laughs> and then again, he aligns himself with average people it's like well that's normal this is when people get married so i wanted to get married that's when a petrol pump attendant gets married and it's again like but george you're not a petrol pump attendant like you you do realize you're the most famous person in the world along with the other beatles and you're also a musician like it's very very different but i think seated in here is there is an element of george sort of seeing himself as a normal person and sort of not mm. you know in the 1978 Men's Only magazine again, he talks about that he got married because he thought that's what people did, yeah. you know? So there was a part of like, it was traditional. Now I do think he absolutely did love her as well. Yeah. But again, it's this lack of beautiful language. Like some of these things maybe should be kept 
in his mind and not said out loud. <laughs> yeah, and I can't remember whether we've read it yet or not, but there's a bit in this interview where he talks about how marriage means sharing absolutely everything. And for George, that includes a lot of blunt comments that are probably a little hurtful and maybe are better kept to yourself or, or rephrased in a slightly more palatable way. Can you imagine hearing that conversation to Patty? George is like, let me tell you the worst things about me. That's right. Or, you know, just sharing how much he'd like to go to bed with this other woman who's in the room next door. Well, I'm just being honest. I'm just being honest. <laughs> But then the other point here that's interesting is he says that's when a petrol pump attendant gets married, though he hasn't got all these people looking at him. It, it's a little bit of an inside or a peek into George's mind. Mm -hmm. Just the way he phrases it is really interesting. It seems like it's pressure. Yeah, He's got all these people looking at him. He feels mm -hmm. like he is under the microscope, don't you think? Yeah, there's something defensive and I don't know, slightly paranoid about the way he's speaking here. I married her because I loved her and because I was fed up not being married. I'm 22. That's normal, isn't it? What about that guy? He got married at 22. Why are you asking me all these questions? Yeah, but I wonder if the people looking at him, he's not talking about the women, which is how I took it at first. I wonder if it's judgment. He feels judged. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Before this dance is through, I think I love you too. I'm so happy when you dance with me. I don't want to kiss or hold your hand. If it's only trying The great thing about getting married, you see, is that everything's different. Before I used to think, there's Patty cooking my dinners in my pots and pans. Now they're her pots and pans, and this house is a home. Beautiful. Yeah, nothing else to say about it other than that I like that. Mm. We're a match for each other, he went on. Just to highlight the fact that Patty and George just got married. Um, this is, you know, this is March 1966. They got married, what, in uh, January 1966, I believe? Yeah. Uh, or early February. Anyways, they've, <laughs> this is their newlywed stage. We're a match Absolutely. for each other, he went on. People should know everything about each other before they get married. I'd like you to put that in my article. Not almost everything, but really everything. Mm -hmm. You must spill it out and get it off your chest, like going to the psychiatrist. That's the great thing about a wife, you see. She's your best friend. I, I question George's wisdom here. Just as much as he want, desperately wants this statement to be in the article, I'd kind of want to say, George, there's a difference between things I'd share with my best friend and things that I'd share with the psychiatrist or another kind of doctor. <laughs> right. Well, Patty still married him. But remember we compared Ringo's view that we both thought was more sophisticated. Yeah. That really once you get married and... They're not in that sort of peacocking phase where yeah. they're trying to impress each other. And that's when they feel the comfort to reveal themselves mm. slowly and you really get to know somebody. Mm. Whereas George's view seems to be that you just dump out all the negative things <laughs> about yourself. And if the other person still wants to marry you, then uh, <laughs> they were warned. Oh, God. Yes. Like to some extent, I, I I like what he's saying that he was honest with her. Yeah. He, he feels like he was really honest with her, and I, I do think that's important. But again, they don't know themselves. They're twenty two and twenty three years old, you know. Yeah, I think part of it too comes out of uh, a criticism at how um, 
how the prior generation had been much more um, hypocritical, I suppose, or had led much more of a kind of dual life where there's the public version of themselves and yeah. then the private version. And George is saying, we need to break down these barriers. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. don't want to be Eleanor Rigby with our face in the jar by the door or, yes. or Uncle Albert getting... Um, having being very sort of buttoned up in public and then getting falling down drunk at family parties. Yeah, that's a great point. That, that, I think that's absolutely what George is saying is that, you know, because he's always seems to be striving to be himself. Yeah, there's that line from Shakespeare again. You might be more the man you are with striving less to be so. Yeah. Such a great yeah. line. But my favorite line in this is... Um, she's your best friend. Mm. And again, I think that's different than the previous generation where they both oh, have yeah. roles that this idea of it, it's being much more equal. Mm. Um, and especially thinking about George's role in the Beatles where, you know, Lennon and McCartney are so intensely into each other, even though they are all brothers and all love each other deeply and are all intertwined. I mean, it's undeniable that Lennon and McCartney are just their own bond. They call each other their best friends, you know, mm. and George is a little bit outside. So I love the fact that he's got this best friend who's really there for him, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think they were a great match. And the reason why I flag the fact that this is a month after they've been married, like they've been together for two years and they've just gotten married and they seem very happy here. And I think based on Patty's later comments, like, you know, in the past 20 years, mm. it seems like they had this really, really deep bond. And he admits that he lost some of the things that were important to him, Patty being one of the things. And I think, I mean, this is going down a rabbit hole of George and Patty, and I think it requires its own episode. But I suspect that George didn't treat Patty as well as he should have. Yeah, maybe once the halo had worn off the the marriage that, yeah, he um, he took her for granted. Um, yeah, yeah. And I mean, again, he's 23. He's a rock star. I'm not being that judgmental. You know, he did what he thought was right, was married her, and he created a home. And he seems to have gotten a lot of pleasure from that. But by all accounts, he also continued to... Um, to cheat. And one of the things that I sent you a quote about this is from Patty's book. She talks about how when in India, he got really fascinated with the god Krishna, who was a spiritual being with lots of concubines. And he came back and he told Patty that this is what he wanted to be. And he, he basically said that no woman was out of bounds for him. And so, you know, perhaps different belief systems coming out of his digging into Eastern philosophy, you know, but certainly it's unfortunate for what seems like a very nice relationship, you know? Yeah. And I suspect that if Patty said, all right, George, then I'm going to behave like Krishna too. He might've had a problem <laughs> with that. Well, in fact, she said that that's when he told her he didn't want her modeling anymore. Mm. So when George is becoming more connected to the spiritual world, he also became a little bit more sexist actually, which is a weird dissonance for me yeah yeah it's funny the, there's a lot of dissonance it's like when um when you hear patty and eric clapton in living in the material world talking about how patty left george and then went with eric 
Eric's version of the story is that it was so sophisticated and there was no jealousy or ownership. And, you know, it was more like here, you know, we'll swap partners and we, mm -hmm. we're all still best friends. And then Patty actually reads an excerpt from her diary at the time. So I'm more inclined to believe her version <laughs> of it. Where George storms into this party, goes down into the garden and demands, are you going with him or are you coming with me? Well... Yeah, I'm sure that was dramatic, but that was after years and years of George's affairs yeah. and telling Ringo that he was in love with his wife in front of Patty. <laughs> so I do not feel sorry for George. But again, 23-year-old rock star, you know. What are you going to do? Yeah. Running through this uncompromising character is a strong romantic streak. Okay, stop. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. There are some key statements in here. This is what makes... George really interesting mm. and it's also a little bit of the dissonance that I see with George sometimes he can be so uncompromising to the extreme mm. and yet he also has this very soft gentle idealistic romantic streak that is so mm. enchanting yeah that's right he he can be so harsh and, and judgmental and sour and then, you know, he can just melt into this little puddle of childlike enthusiasm at times. Yes, yeah. It's like when you're watching the anthology and there's like a moment where Paul's just innocuously saying, you remember going down to a film show in the village? And George just blanks him and just keeps playing his ukulele. He just clearly does not want to engage with Paul at all. And you go, oh, come on, George. Like, even if it's just for the cameras, you could perform <laughs> yeah. a little bit. Um, but then there's like, and you, you watch the real love video and he's just sort of so clearly filled with enthusiasm at being back in the room with these guys that he's the one who's filming it all. Yeah. feels romantic about his wife and he feels romantic about his music. He says it is his religion and he worries a great deal about it. He wishes he could write fine songs as Lennon and McCartney do, but he has difficulty with the words. Paddy keeps asking me to write more beautiful words, he said. He played his newest composition. His own voice came over the tape singing, love me while you can, before I'm a dead old man. <laughs> George was aware that these words were not <laughs> before I'm a dead old man are not beautiful words. Yeah, I think, again, that's that's George's blunt side. Interesting, too. He says music is his religion. Yeah, that's really interesting. No wonder he came to love Indian music where the, you know, the, the line separating culture from devotion and spiritualism is so blurred because for mm. him it already was. It's interesting. I love that statement, actually. I love George's love of music as it appears in this piece. One and... of my favorite quotes from George 
I think it's very revealing of his character, or at least how he thinks about himself. He said, um, God likes me when I work, but loves me when I sing. Oh, that's very beautiful. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, that's very beautiful. And that gives him reason to sing. Hmm. Making God happy. Yeah. In here, he says he wishes he could write fine songs as Lennon McCartney do, but he has difficulty with the words. So it was an interesting statement that he, he, he does want to write as beautifully as them, but he's a little bit self-effacing here or a little bit self-critical saying that, yeah. you know, he's basically admitting that he doesn't think he writes as beautiful songs as them, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's, yeah. he sort of underplays his own talent, mm. uh, which he does again with Hunter. But what's interesting is, like she says at the beginning, that he's an original. They do have a George flavor. Mm. I think maybe he gets a little bit, he gets a little bit more poetic, but he also gets maybe a little bit more comfortable with just his style of writing. And his stuff is so funny in the middle of the romanticism and idealism of Lennon and McCartney. It's kind of just like, again, it's mm. a separate taste in an album from the Beatles. Yeah. It's like that comment about how his, his chords are, uh, a clutch of notes that are quite dissonant, but um, I don't know. It's like the um, the one little ingredient in an otherwise uh, familiar dish that wakes it up. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, you know, he holds Lennon and McCartney in high regard here. Yeah. He's not, you know, later on in the 70s, he was kind of like, anybody can be Lennon and McCartney, but you can see in 66, he's complimentary of them. He has been given Roger's thesaurus to help. I wanted another word for thick, he said. He looked it up and was thrilled <laughs> with the list of synonyms. You have heard the one he used on the LP. Although your mind's opaque, try thinking more if just for your own sake. Good it's, lyric. So George, it's so George that he's looking for a word for thick. Yeah, of course. <laughs> an, an insult that he can hold it, that he can judge somebody else with. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> So this shows that he's working on his songs that he wished that they could, you know, hit again. He's sort of underplaying his own talent here or underrepresenting his own talent and he's working towards it. But I don't get the sense that he's angry that like my songs are just as good and they're not no. giving me the space. And, and that's sometimes, you know, when you talk to people, they're like John and Paul, they didn't give George room in 1966. And if you look at the, the Beatles official biography by Hunter, it's the same there. Although he's much more into Indian music there, and he just says that he only has some time for songwriting. It's, it's less front and center for George. Yeah. Paul's obsessed with it. Yeah, it's everything for him. There's no way for him not to push his songs because it's just he lives and breathes it. Hmm. Whereas I think that this is something that George enjoys doing along with learning a sitar, you know. Yeah, yeah. Lauren it's at the same level as like gardening or <laughs> yeah, exactly. or other enthusiasms like he's, he is passionate about it but yeah. it's one of a range of competing passions and he can kind of move from one to the other yeah and it is something independent unlike the other two but you know in 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 hunter's book he says uh, george rather plays down his beatles songs considering them a minor sideline and then he says he can't remember how many he's written and he isn't even clear which albums he did songs for. And so it's something that I think he enjoys doing. Either he is completely misrepresenting and downplaying it purposefully, 
Hmm. Or else he was being truthful. And it was one of many things that he was interested in. Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. It's like George, the mere morsel plodding along. Yes, yes, yes. It's both him being kind of genuinely self-effacing about his modest achievements yes. and feeling slighted at other people <laughs> perceiving them as modest. It is also not the only thing. I think he puts a lot of effort into the construction. You know, he says that he's romantic about music. I think he puts a lot of thought into all of his guitar parts. Yeah. And it's not just songwriting. It's like some of his compositional skills goes into that. You know, she talks about he's always on his guitar. So the writing the songs, I think, isn't the only outlet for his love of music, you know? Yeah, that's quite true. Yeah, I wanted to flag this because this idea that George is so frustrated and people are very sympathetic for his role in the Beatles um, or his position in the Beatles, in Hunter's book, he says, um, it, Hunter talks about the fact that there's an idea that George should have been given more space. And he says, fans are always asking, why don't John and Paul let him sing more? And George says, it's not true. They don't let me. I would if I wanted to. I just can't be bothered. Yeah. So I think it's important to realize that as they are developing George is going deep into the sitar. He's learning about Indian culture and meditation and becoming more and more of a songwriter. And he probably, he wants attention and space for his songs, but I don't get the sense that in 66 or late 67, he's angry about the fact that he isn't given more space, you know? No, I don't. I think it's far too simple to, to think that Lennon and McCartney are somehow gagging George right. out of jealousy at his burgeoning talent. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, right. it's like um, people are always so critical of Paul in the 4442 meeting saying, yeah. uh, the thing is, until this year, I don't think George's songs were as good as ours. I think in, in Lewison's Hornsey Roadshow, he even went so far as to suggest George should have punched Paul at that point in time. Mm. It, it's disingenuous because there's more to that quote. Paul goes on to say, but now... I think yeah. George's songs are as good as, if not better than ours. Yeah. And it's unfair to criticize Paul for the first half of that quote without acknowledging the second half. Yes, that's Paul's perspective. And you can disagree with Paul not thinking some of George's 66 or 67 songs are as good, but he gives credit to the songs he likes. Those are songs that are very Paulish. Yeah. So, Yeah. I don't want to say that George doesn't care. There could be a lot baked in here. He has to go and present his own music to Lennon and McCartney, mm. and he has to champion them. And maybe it took him a while to feel really comfortable and own that they are as good. So mm. that could be playing into his downplaying of his own music in 66. But I don't think it's just that. George is growing as a songwriter at this point. Absolutely. And he acknowledges that. He does. He talks about how it was in some ways easier for John and Paul because they got to write all of their shitty songs before <laughs> yeah. they were famous. Yeah, And he had enough. to start writing his shitty songs at the point at which he was, you know, the most famous person in the world. <laughs> right. He plays the guitar for hours on end, taking it up during conversation like a piece of knitting. When it isn't guitar, it's the sitar. For George, the instrument of Indian classical music has given a new meaning to life. He went to hear Ravi Shankar play it at the festival hall. I couldn't believe it, he said. 
It was just like everything you have ever thought of as great, all coming out at once. Cheer down, George. Cheer down. (laughs) (laughs) Everything, everywhere, all at once. But I think this is so sweet. This is like, this is the romantic streak of George. Something connected with his soul. It's so simple. There's nothing cynical about this, you know? That's that's so true. It's unguarded enthusiasm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I love just thinking about George and his love for music and how he's sitting there with his guitar. And again, I think he's always been composing as a guitarist for the Beatles, you know? Mm, mm. Yeah, I don't know whether it's in this version of the article, but I think in the in the English version, she mentions that the thing that he's idly playing over and over again is the trumpet voluntary tune. That bum, And of course, he would use it in 1967 next year um, on It's All Too Much. Mm-hmm. So there you go, Beatle fans. Um, little trivia for the yeah. Beatle nerds. and bought some sitars, several sitars, never one to do things by halves. He decided to look exactly as Ravi Shankar (laughs) did on the album cover. He sat on carpets and twisted his legs round like Ravi did in the picture. His leg went to sleep and when he stood up, he fell over. I wish I could sit on the floor like Ravi, he said earnestly. (laughs) I like the fact that it's not just about the music, like every aspect of it has to be there. I have to have the look as well and I have to adopt the posture and I have to go to India for six years. (laughs) There must be some mysticism. There is a magic around it. It Mm. signifies something more that captivates George, right? Yeah, that's right. And some part of it must just be the attraction of something which is very different. Yeah, Um, exotic. Yeah, Yeah. there's an exotic appeal to it. Mm. The instrument is complicated and George's enthusiasm, while it does not increase understanding, is infectious. He insists you count within the 16 beats in certain passages. He twists his mouth about to sing with the old Indian lady on the record. He has considered going to India for six years to play it properly, but thinks he would miss his friends. Just before I went to sleep one night, I thought what it would be like to be inside Ravi Sita. What a weird thought to have just as you're going to bed. You know what? Actually, that is my favorite line from this whole piece. Really? Okay. It really is. Because... That gives me insight into how much George is processing and thinking yeah. about music. And mm. it's like a, a fantasy world of being inside, you know, when you're shrunken small in movies. Like, it's yeah. almost like he wants to be one with this guitar and yeah. Ravi playing it. It's so fantastical and whimsical. And I just, I get how much he loves it if his imagination is playing with it that much. Yeah, and again, it's it's about being so kind of overwhelmed and absorbed that you cease to exist. He doesn't want to be George. He just wants to be, you know, um, the sound of Ravi Sita. Yeah. That to him is perfection. Yeah, it's fascinating to me. The level of which it has sort of occupied his mind
But there is a practical side to George, a side that admits no mysteries, no contradictions in life. He is firm when he believes himself to be right, which is most of the time. <laughs> Take the war in Vietnam. I think about no, it no, every no, day. No, 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 stop, stop, stop. Okay. Because that, that's an important line too, actually. Yeah. And it's interesting that it just came after this such a whimsical statement I about know. just before I went to sleep one night, I thought what it would be like to be inside of Ravi's sitar. And then she goes to this other side and there is this very, like I said, I, I, it's, it's almost a working class thing. This very practical, mm. which admits to no mysteries. You know, things are very pragmatic, practical. I know. Uh, no contradictions in life. It's like, well, where does music come from, you know? <laughs> and I mean, I'm always trying to reconcile these two sides, you know? Yeah. He's a Pisces fish, Diana. You know, the, the two fish are swimming in opposite directions. So one of them can, can, you know, embrace mysticism and spirituality. And the other one is just going, no, we're just in water and we're just swimming. <laughs> Maybe. I certainly know that's more Gemini. It's like my puppy is half Tasmanian devil, half angel. She's, mm. she's a Gemini. But I think this, the reason why I had you stop on this is, so there's a, a practical side which admits no mysteries no contradictions in life he's very black and white he's firm where he believes himself to be right which is most, most of, the of the time and so i think we have to consider this in the breakup hmm. that he has a firm sense of his own boundaries that he often believes he is right and he doesn't really see gray he's very black and white about things hmm. And so, you know, personally, I think that I think that George wasn't always empathetic. I, I don't think he ever saw Paul as vulnerable, but yeah. I'm sometimes a little bit surprised in the breakup that George, for all of his wisdom and generosity, kind of didn't see the softness and the vulnerability of Paul. Yeah, and I quite agree. I think he got very set in his ways about him being right. Yeah. And I feel like he, he actually has a more nuanced understanding as he's living it. So in 69, for example, he goes home and writes a song like um, Run of the Mill, mm -hmm. which a lot of people now will talk about as a, an anti-Paul song, but I don't think it is. No. I think it's a song about, you know, how Lennon and McCartney are so great, neither of them can see yes. George. Yes. So it's not just an anti-Paul song. Um, but then it's like George's perspective gets skewed by later events and he comes to see Paul as the, as the kind of Alan Klein-like bad guy and yeah, can't for the life of him acknowledge or, or see any of the, the generous things that Paul did, like yeah. Um, yeah. January 1970, helping him yeah. finish I Me Mine and turning yeah. it into this fantastic song where John just could not be fucking bothered. Yeah, I know. I, I think underneath it, like if you look at Run of the Mill, it's hurt of not being acknowledged. He's not being judgmental there. No. He's not being cynical. He is saying that he, 
wants their attention. And I believe that a lot of his anger at Paul comes from being hurt. You know, mm. we talked about George treating the Beatles like it's his family. I, I think there's something much deeper about Paul leaving. That's how I read his anger at Paul. And also, I tend to think that he, for some reason, thinks Paul is Teflon. Yeah. He always sees Paul as someone with power and agency. Yeah. I think that George is kind enough that he wouldn't have been taking swipes at Paul in public if he thought Paul was hurting. Mm. I don't think he understands Paul's vulnerability. Yeah. But I also think that George gets very stuck in his position. Now, Paul also can be this way. But I think yeah. George can too, and it's important to know that. Yeah, that's right. This is the bit that I've been kind of leading towards. Take the war in Vietnam. I think about it every day, he said. It's all wrong. Anything to do with war is wrong. They're all wrapped up in their Nelsons and their Churchills and their Montes, always talking about war heroes. Look at all our yesterdays, how we killed a few more Huns or there. Makes me sick. They're the sort who are leaning on walking sticks and telling us a few years in the army would do us good. So what I what I mean here is that he's so devotional about a 70-year-old Indian woman who represents a kind of a form of classical or cultural conservatism. Yeah. Um when it when it comes from this um exotic place that he's being dismissive of something directly comparable from his own experience. So yeah, I know he's being critical of war here, but it's not yeah. just war. He's being critical of the entire cultural ethos that surrounds Britain and empire. And yeah, yeah amazingly dismissive of stuff that, that has value to it as much as it can be criticized. And um, yeah, so wholly embracing of, of something that, when it comes from that foreign place and so dismissive of something from his own. I think it's, yeah, it's, it's curious and I don't, I don't quite get it. Yeah. There's something about the exoticness of this different culture that he's able to see the beauty and grace of it, Yeah, which he sort of misses in his own culture. India is not all perfection. And, no. you know, there's a lot of things you could criticize about India but he doesn't do that like because it's exotic and new and part of the Indian culture connected to him. He sees it through a very, very positive lens. Sure. And maybe there's a little bit of naivete there, like he's choosing to see only the best parts of it. And it's easier for him to focus on the most detrimental parts of his own culture because he's so entrenched in it. Um, I suppose a, a better example is, how dismissive is he is of his own grammar school education or lack yes. of it. Um, yes. The fact that anyone but George Harrison, when they're talking or writing about the grammar school initiative in England in the 1950s, says how overwhelmingly positive and revolutionary this was in educational terms. This, is, this was just the most extraordinary golden opportunity handed to people who never had anything like this right. before. And George just throws it aside. <laughs> there are things that are worthy of admiration in his culture. So I get what you're saying. It's very black and white, as, as, as you, you've established. Yeah, 
But beyond that point, what I do like about what he's saying is the fact that he's questioning the culture that celebrates violence. Mm. And, and it's so advanced to consider the human element of it, which it seems like the previous generation, it was all celebrating these war heroes and the power versus the impact of what they had done. Yeah, fair point. And at least in, I suppose, in, in championing this um, recording of, of Indian music, he's, he's valuing something that's alive in that moment. And what he's dismissive of is a kind of veneration of past glory that doesn't represent where he is and doesn't speak to him where he lives. Right. Here he's specifically talking about war and, mm. you know, and he's challenging that. Like This is where the 60s really was quite different and much more idealistic than the 50s. And this is early days that George is going on record and saying that. And so mm. in the interview where John gets all of the press for saying something controversial, here is where George was equally political, brave about stating his opinion. This to me, sometimes George's views on meditation and, and Indian philosophy and Buddhism is not aligned with parts of George's personality. But here there is, I see a consistency with his embracing of sort of the Buddhist tradition and meditation and we are all one and not killing people. So here I actually yeah. see intellectual consistency. Maybe it's, it's also got something to do with George embracing something he sees as unfairly maligned or ignored. Like um, the British Empire has been, you know, on top of the world for a century or so at this point. Mm -hmm. So it's this sort of great looming thing. Whereas there's a very strong Indian presence in London, certainly by 1966, although they're very much second class citizens. Yes. yes. And so maybe he's trying to to take something into his heart that um, he feels like needs a defender. Do you know what I mean? Definitely, definitely. And um, it's hilarious that he uses the example of someone leaning on a walking stick as this kind of symbol of empire and yes, class yes. and everything they don't like. And yet you just go back two articles <laughs> and Ringo up. is walking around his grounds with a walking stick. I know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He has no problem playing it being he a does Lord of the not. <laughs> Because Ringo, you know, he's also the ones that call the upper classes Piggy and says, <laughs> and says he's glad they're leaving Britain. So yeah. it's interesting. There's more of an anger from George about class. There's more of the rebellion. It's true that George is more rebellious against authority than mm. Ringo. You know, we talked about it. There is element of class in, in Ringo's profile too, but weirdly he's able to exist sort of outside of it too. He's sort of got a sense of theater, Ringo too. Yeah. I think George is um, probably more rebellious against prevailing authorities than even John is. I think so too. I think yeah. that George is the, the biggest rebel. Yeah. John wants to, to make them feel embarrassed, to deflate them, whereas George is kind of being much more openly and genuinely critical. Well, also, John wouldn't mind replacing them as the mm. leader, whereas George doesn't actually want to, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. You know, she says this later on, that he's... <laughs> He's against all authority, which is <laughs> right. problematic. But anyways, keep going. Okay. 
The others tease him about his interest in money. If you want to know how much money I've got, Paul says, ask George. He does take a minute interest in what happens to their money, and at the moment is particularly incensed about income tax. He is conceivably the first composer to write a song on the subject. His views are disconcertingly <laughs> simple. <laughs> he thinks that his, George's personal taxes, are going directly to pay for F-triple-ones. He sees Mr. Wilson, the Prime Minister of England, as the Sheriff of Nottingham. There he goes, George says bitterly, taking <laughs> all his money and then moaning about deficits here, deficits there, always moaning about deficits. <laughs> okay, stop. Any comments about this one? They're all naive about money. Um, it's like Paul, where the, uh, he, he's just as bad, like when he, um, he wants confirmation that he's a millionaire. His way of confirming it is to demand to know whether there are a million pieces of paper in the bank <laughs> in some sort of vault which has his name on it. It doesn't work that way, Paul. <laughs> and John, too. John has no idea. He's buying and returning cars. He doesn't know how much money he's got. Yeah. Um, but I do think that this was a big issue for George in a way that it doesn't seem to have been for Ringo in that, you know, George definitely did feel the second class citizen in terms of the Northern songs issue, Mm -hmm. him not getting, and I think he was acutely aware of it. Although again, you know, when you read this article, when you read uh, the Hunter bio, George isn't bitter. He recognizes he doesn't write as much as them. Yeah. But I still think that he realizes that he doesn't have as much money as them. Yeah. And this is probably just George's personality too. You know, he is in the details. You know? Yeah, totally. Yeah, there and there is something very simplistic about um, thinking that, hey, I'm giving you a lot of money. How can there be deficits? On the other hand, I do understand that whatever, like it was crazy how much tax these guys played. Like, I know. Crazy. That you know, Wilson's that, super tax is insane, like 96% or maybe it was even higher. 98%. Yeah, it was something like that, which is insane. And it, all the lords that are running this, they all have tons of money. So I can understand how George would feel the inequity of it. Like, mm. 
why don't you take some money from your own giant estate yeah. and cover it rather than taking me, a little scruffy lout from Liverpool, taking everything I make and then complaining about deficit. So I can see how it would seem unjust to mm. to George. Yeah, like he's being um, penalized. Yeah, yes. punished for getting above his station. You're exactly. not supposed to make this kind of money. Exactly. Yeah. Only we are allowed to have manners. So we're going to take most of it and we're going to keep taking most of it. Yeah. So I can see how it would have seemed like the system was against them. You yeah. Know? There's a part of me also that takes Cleve's point that to, to, to imagine the prime minister as the sheriff of Nottingham taking everyone's money and they like hoarding it in this private little treasure house and, and to moan about deficits. I want to say the reason he's moaning about deficits is that he also has to pay for everything. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> and it is hilarious. This is so George to be the one that writes Taxman. Yeah. It's a great song. I love Taxman. It's a Taxman. great song. That's right. In fact, he approves of nobody in authority, religious or secular. These people are called big cheeses or King Henry's. They should practice what they preach. And according to George, they do not. I mean, this is hilarious coming right after the Don profile. Yeah, King Henry. Yeah. And yeah now that I've, I've made the run of the mill comparison, I'm tempted to say, what is a mill owner if not a big cheese? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But there is a little bit of an immaturity there in yeah. that of being critical of the big cheeses and not wanting to take over that role. Mm. You know, like if every authority person is bad and corrupt, it, you know, and power corrupts, but somebody's got to do it. And I think yeah. that's sort of where I feel like there is a tension between George and Paul. Paul is like, yeah, it's not cool to be the one that's pushing us, but somebody has to do it. Yeah, again, it's it's the failure to 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 see that uh, along with being the big cheese comes the weight of responsibility. Yes, yes. Um, and yeah, very easy to snipe on the sidelines where you don't have to actually. Yeah, sometimes I want to say to George, or, or maybe I'm just kind of projecting other people I know onto George. Yeah. Um, if you're not willing to be part of the solution, you forfeit your right to complain. <laughs> now, one other thing we, we talk about, like George doesn't really want responsibility. And I was reading an interview that George gave when he was in Haight-Ashbury and he had all of these people that were following him and that basically deified George. And he reacted to it so much and just said, don't follow gurus. You know, it, he was very clear at that point that anybody who's a guru is not 
truly a guru, you know, think for yourself. Yeah. And so I like that consistency there. Um, you know, he did follow the Maharishi. It's like, I guess the difference would be that George was okay having teachers, mm. but he didn't put the Maharishi on such a pedestal that when the Maharishi wasn't a god, he was nothing. You know what I mean? Mm. Maybe George was able to position him a little bit more appropriately as a teacher. Yeah, well, he certainly seems to have, for, for such a poor student at the Liverpool Institute, he seems to have been a, a model student to Ravi Shankar. Yeah, for people he respects, like Ravi or the Maharishi, he does respect their authority. He's very yes. respectful of them. And yet this idea of these ultimate gurus, he pushes back on as in don't, you know, for these kids that are following him in Haight-Ashbury, he was just saying, no, you know, think for yourself, don't follow people. I acknowledge the point you're making about intellectual consistency there too. And I know he's speaking about um, the, the evils of war earlier, but the examples that he gives are Nelson, um, Monty, like he's talking about putting war heroes up on pedestals and venerating them, a similar kind of guru-making process. I'll find the quote. I think about it every day, you said, and it's wrong. Anything to do with war is wrong. So, yeah, you're right. It is um, a, a pacifist point yes. there that he's yeah. making. But then he sort of changes tack slightly and says they're all wrapped up in their Nelsons and their Churchills and their Montes, always talking about war, uh, about war heroes. Yeah. So part of what he objects to is the deification of certain individuals that become guru-like and statues yes. are erected of them yes. and 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 being again it, it's sort of it's being told you have to venerate this that he objects to yeah like being told he has to dress in a certain way or he has to create a hit record he what he objects to is people telling him you must worship this guru and he's saying well if i'm going to have a guru it's going to be one of my choice yeah he's confident and headstrong enough to not want to blindly follow authority. You yeah. know, he, he seems to instead want to determine which figures are worthy of his respect. Mm. And uh, his immediate inclination seems to be to rebel against any authority. But at the same time, as I said, I was so impressed by what he told the kids in Haight-Ashbury. Mm. It was proof to me about how deeply he has internalized some of the ideas of his studies and the fact that he didn't want to be followed, it wasn't an ego thing for George. And what he said was that really they should be trusting themselves mm. and their own wisdom. And that, of course, is incredibly wise. Yeah. Take teachers, he said. In every class when I was at school, there was always a little kid who was scruffy and smelly. And the punishment was always to sit next to the smelly kid. Fancy a teacher doing that. 
Oh, again, I'm I, I'm kind of partly with him and partly I'm not with him. Yeah. I think it is awful if a teacher actually does that as a punishment, but it's so George to think every single teacher <laughs> is like that. Right, right, right. And remember the sentence above: he approves of nobody in authority. Yeah, yeah. Like George has a very high hypocrisy radar, mm, totally. and he sees injustice. You know. But sometimes he misses the beauty of what's going on too. Like, yes, there are lots of bad teachers, but does he not have any good teachers at the Liverpool exactly. Institute? And Hunter talks about that, that he was surprised to hear that George took Olivia to see the Institute because he was so negative about it when he was talking to Hunter. Mm. So, you know, Paul found the beauty and it could be that Paul devoted himself to it, and so teachers responded to him, whereas, you know, we know from George's report cards that he apparently put zero effort into it, so maybe he got nothing from them as well. Yeah. But he also played a role in that. Like, there were good teachers there. There were great classmates there. That's right, George. The love you take is equal to the love you make. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> It is useless to reason with George on these issues. His <laughs> mind is made up. His independence seems to have rooted itself at an early age. In the old Liverpool days, he would stand at the bus stop wearing his black leather suit, white cowboy boots, and a very pale pink peaked cap. He would be the only person at the bus stop so dressed. When the bus arrived, he would board with guitar amplifier and often tea chest bass. Personal embarrassment is something he rarely suffers from. Okay, stop. Yeah, this is great because it it highlights something that is so admirable in George. Mm -hmm. He just does not give a shit what other people think. Yeah. Personal embarrassment is not something that exists. And he has a kind of courage to yes. be himself in a world that would lead others to be quite judgmental of him. And he can, their criticism is like water off a duck's back. Yeah. And at the same time, you cannot even reason with this person. <laughs> His mind is made up, no matter how much you demonstrate yourself that you know to to be um to be a good, decent human being. If George thinks you're bad, then he yeah, is yeah. immovable. Yes, this is the beauty and challenge of George. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably relaxing being with somebody like this because they're not needy for you. You know, yeah. I think that's, again, one of the things that's enjoyable about George. He's doing what he wants, so you can like him or not like him. He doesn't care. But on the other hand, I do get how he would be difficult if he was that immovable, you know? Yeah, that's right. No, and yeah, I, I take what you're saying. On the one hand, it's great to be with someone and you know exactly where you stand with them, <laughs> which is what George would be like. But if where you're standing is not where you want to be standing and there's no way out of that position, it would be awful. Yeah, well, that, and that's the problem with being very black and white is that most most situations aren't black and white. That's the problem. Yes, you know? most things are quite gray. Yeah, yeah. Especially if you have, you know, a little empathy and uh, imagination. Yeah, yeah. And John and George can both be black and white. Mm. And I think that's why Paul doesn't actually communicate as well is Paul is more nuanced. Mm. and sees more gray and sometimes mm. when he is bending over backwards to see in 1969 or 70 when he's bending over backwards to represent their position as well as his position it doesn't play well you know what i mean in the media 
Yeah, that's right. And they don't seem to like it either. They want Paul to be, um, I don't know, to their eyes, he's kind of being cagey or he's stalling or he's not standing no, right, up for right, what he right, really right, thinks. Right. And they want him to cut to the chase. Whereas in Paul's mind, he's he's trying to take a balanced view. <laughs> <laughs> I do think he is trying to probably justify his position, mm, but mm. I, I also do think he does try to understand their perspective, at least. Yeah, I agree. And to go on to religion, George said. He was born into the Catholic <laughs> He's getting thing. warmed up on things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think religion falls flat on its face. All this love thy neighbor, but none of them are doing it. How can anybody get themselves into the position of being Pope and accept all the glory and the money and the Mercedes Benz and that? I could never be Pope until I'd sold my rich gates and my posh hat. <laughs> I couldn't sit there with all that money on me and believe I was religious. Why can't we bring all this out into the open? Why is there all this stuff about blasphemy? If Christianity is as good as they say it is, it should stand up to a bit of discussion. Well, yeah, that almost is a rebuttal to everything that happened in the States. All of this bigger than Jesus is, totally. George literally says, like, let's talk about it. And I entirely agree with that point. You know, if it's a belief worth having, it's a belief worth interrogating. Yeah. Um, but God, when, when he says, I couldn't sit there with all the money and believe I was religious, I think, and there you have. The, uh, the tormented soul of George Harrison for the next 40 or 50 years. <laughs> I know. In, in his gothic mansion yeah. with his beautiful grounds. And then there's the spiritual side that's like, you don't need any of that stuff. On the other hand, George never professes to be a guru. He never takes that role on. Yeah. It's like um, Dave Chappelle was doing a, a stand-up um, not that recently, it was, it was one of his former ones, but he was talking about how he had become Muslim um, and that he's getting a lot of um, flack in the media for not living up to Muslim values. And his comment on it was, I said I was Muslim. I didn't say I was good at it. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. Fair. These are ideal states. And, yeah. and that's the thing is George is idealistic. You know? That's right. He takes a Wordsworthian view of the evils of urban society and the influences of mass media. Babies, when they are born, George said, are pure. Gradually, they get more impure with all the rubbish being pumped into them by society and television and that. Till gradually, they're dying off, full of everything. Stop. Yeah. It's, uh, there's a, an adaptation of Alice in Wonderland that's made in this year, 1966. And it's so similar to everything in this article, including this little section of it. It begins with a Wordsworth poem. So it's about, you know, the, um, the kind of raw perceptive powers of childhood and how they get gradually dulled the older that you get. And George is making a kind of a similar point, but it's, it's also about the evils of civilization or cosmopolitan life. But yeah, that, that adaptation is, is also full of Indian, floaty, trippy, mystical music. So at exactly the same time George is getting into it, this TV adaptation does it. So yeah, there's some, um, George is sort of tapping into an energy here which is visible elsewhere at exactly the same time. That's interesting. Although it's quite cynical. Mm. I, mm. You know, this is 
right before the summer of love. I mean, you know, this is swinging London. There was so much positivity and here George is going down this rabbit hole of everything sucks. And, you know, (laughs) (laughs) the idea of babies becoming impure with all the rubbish being pumped into them by society and television. It's a bit tinfoil hat, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's negative. Mm. It's it's like George spirals down these rabbit holes of negativity and then you get him talking about Indian music and he spirals back up about something very positive, you know? Yeah, yeah. Hearing him, like, I wonder if this is his view of society. It's just a weird view for a 23-year-old. It is. It sounds sort of um, quite world-weary, doesn't it? It does. Like he's, like he's endured these evils for decades and decades. Yes. Yes. <laughs> when, when you know, you, you're in the, the beating heart of swinging London, you've only been there for a couple of years. Is there, like, there's nothing about this that impresses you? <laughs> That's what I mean. It's very cynical for a 23-year-old, especially yeah. a, a 23-year-old that is newly in love. You know what I mean? I think he just gets into modes of sometimes he's really negative and sometimes he's really mm. positive. Yeah, he's, he can't do, he's always one or the other. Yeah. He can't do anything in between. It was a distressing thought. George, who had concerned himself with this interview so far, grew anxious about the ending. I don't want my article to end up sad. <laughs> Nowhere land, making all my nothing plans for nobody. I don't want the angry young man against the world sort of ending. I tell you what I think. The main thing is to have a good time and do the best you can. Okay, we're the famous Beatles. So what? There are other things apart from being famous Beatles. It's not the living end, is it? Sorry, I'm laughing. It's just that he said, I don't want to, I don't want to be negative. Let me be positive. <laughs> Everybody just have fun. Unless you're a Beatle, which is a really shitty thing to be. And he's just fallen back down that rabbit hole again. Exactly. <laughs> he can't talk for more than a sentence without getting back into that spiral of depression. <laughs> On the other hand, I feel like I've seen twice as much of life as most people do when they peg out. I'm very pleased that I'm me, because after all, I could have been somebody else, couldn't I? Somehow, one can always see what George is driving at. I'm not sure that I always see what George is driving at. (laughs) Most of the time, I do. Maybe I needed to have been there. Yeah, I mean, it seems like George can spiral. Uh, in mm. negativity or like you said spiral up in positivity yeah you know, one way or the other he was going down a rabbit hole of negativity here of of seeming like things were hopeless and then he corrects <laughs> himself you know i think he is very concerned with sharing his knowledge and a message john said something quite similar too like have a laugh do the best that you can you Don't know which i like so seriously yeah after after. After, after all of what he's just said is kind of <laughs> ironic i know he's battling with his own demons here the main thing is to have a good time and do the best you can okay we're the famous beatles so what and it's kind of like well you did do the best you can and you became really famous so that's good george that's great <laughs> yeah I feel like this is his internal monologue almost coming out. Don't you think? I know, I know. That line is like George's inner monologue. Like, okay, do the best you can. Okay, yeah, so so I'm a famous beat. So what? Okay, there are other things apart from being famous. (laughs) I do get the sense that there's almost a fear of losing it too, as much as I would never say that about George. Mm. The fact that he 
it's almost like he doesn't want to love it and embrace it. Yeah. Because then it's too meaningful or something, you know? Yeah, that, that's really interesting. It's like he's he's afraid of embracing it wholeheartedly for some reason because of what it might imply about who he is if he did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's almost a fear. Like he's always dismissing it because maybe... If he embraced it, it could be taken away. You know, so there's something yeah. there that's interesting. Mm. But then he sees the good side of it. Yeah. So, yeah, thinking it through, I think we agree that he's unoriginal. I think he gets frustrated when he's not seen. Mm. So I wouldn't say that he doesn't need anything, because I think mm. that's one of his issues, is he wants to be seen. Yeah. But it's not this overriding neediness that John and Paul have. And he doesn't have this competitive spirit that they have. Yeah. He wants to be valued and respected. Um, and he has a kind of, I don't know, fear of being shallow or insubstantial. Um, and maybe it's partly driven by um, guilt or, or, or like paranoia that his position in life has not been earned, but um, is a kind of an accident of luck or something. Yeah, like you were saying about um, being reticent to fully embrace what's happened to him. Well, that's what I mean. Like there's an insecurity or, or maybe it's a protectiveness, a self-protectiveness. You know, he, he wants to be careful. I get the sense that George is careful with his emotions. I think he wants to be valued for his contributions. Mm. And it's hard because he's working with Lennon and McCartney who are obsessed with each other and can barely ever even give each other a compliment, never mind George. So <laughs> yeah, they've got their own issues. Yeah. They've got their own issues. George is always there and he probably wants recognition. Another quote from George that I loved was, I play the notes you never hear. And there's there's so much of what we've been saying wrapped yes. up in that that one quote. But yeah, that line acknowledges the fact that he he contributes something vital and valuable to the Beatles sound, even though that thing kind of lurks in the shadows a little bit as the, what did John call him, the invisible guitarist or the invisible singer? Um, guitarist, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, that's right. But I think what he would have dearly liked from Paul McCartney and John Lennon is for them to have said, we heard them. We heard them. And that concludes our exploration of Cleve's profile on George Harrison. I have a couple of follow-up notes on things we mentioned in the episode and a few concluding thoughts and observations on the piece as a whole. The first note was regarding the film, or rather televised play, Alice in Wonderland, mentioned by Duncan. I did a little more research into this production and found a very interesting connection to George. It turns out that this production was scored 
by none other than Ravi Shankar. And given George's obsession for all things Ravi, he would have been well aware of this production. My second note is a follow-up about George and his education. I also dug a little more deeply into this subject and found some additional quotes from his teachers, including this one from his teacher, who felt that George was a boy with little academic ability and that art was the only subject at which he had made any effort. And another from the schoolmaster who said that George had not taken part in any school activities whatsoever. In fact, George claims to have burned his final report card because it made him feel so badly and so guilty. Clearly, the Liverpool Institute was not a happy experience for George. In his 1980 book, I Mean Mine, George said the worst thing for him was leaving the junior high school and going to the big grammar school. And that that was when the darkness began. He said that he didn't like the whole idea of it was so serious that he couldn't smile and he wasn't allowed to do this or that, that the attitude was be here, stand here, shut up, sit down. And always you needed those exams, those 11 plus exams or scholarships or GCE. That is where, as he called it, the darkness came in. He said it was awful, the worst time of his life. Derek Taylor actually commented on George's contradictory nature when it came to school and learning. He said, George's distaste for school, hatred even, resentment certainly is puzzling because quite soon after leaving, he became an eager, earnest seeker after information, truth, and learning. George now is a success in all conventional meetings of that word, yet school was unable to strike a single chord in the boy who later, as you read this now, craved and obtained available details on almost everything. George said that school molded us into being frightened, which is probably true to some extent, or at least that seems to have been the impact it had on George. If nothing else, I think we can conclude that the Liverpool Institute was not an environment suited to him. It seemed to trigger anxiety and rebelliousness in him. Perhaps this stems from his family dynamics and George being the youngest child. When I think of George's parents' comments about George, they seem to be perpetually amused by George's impishness. And he seemed to have always had a partner in crime in his mother, who supported and indulged his passions, and she seemed to appreciate fun and adventure. Anyways, his parents seemed to correctly recognize that there was no real malice behind any of his antics, and they seemed to just let George be George. Whereas the Liverpool Institute seemed to require a certain amount of conformity and performance. And maybe that just didn't suit his nature. Maybe he would have benefited from a substantially different environment, perhaps one with less rigidity and more warmth, like his home life. Because when he got teachers he liked, teachers who were serious about their subject, but warm and playful in their approach, he was the very best of students. So those are my two follow-up host notes. But I also have a few additional thoughts and takeaways from the profile as a whole. First, it's worth noting that George is 23 at the time of this interview, so that has to be taken into account, as it should be for all of their profiles. And therefore, some of their comments are simply a product of youth. But still, Cleve manages to capture some of their defining characteristics, even at this early stage. In this profile, George comes across as quite the character, defiantly himself, endearingly earnest, youthfully rebellious, hilariously blunt, but also occasionally very thoughtful and mature. But what I found most surprising about this profile, upon reflection, 
was that my overall impression was that George was content and secure in his place in the world and with the Beatles. This is George we're talking about. So of course there was grumbling about big cheeses and the state of society and the ills of the world. But overall, he appeared pleased and with good reason. At this time, he had a pretty incredible life, a wonderful new wife, a lovely house full of strange pink plants and the latest in design, fab cars and stylish friends, and an all-consuming new passion and a killer sense of style. Basically, he had created a pretty groovy situation for himself. And while I don't think my impression is necessarily revelatory or a hot take, the reason I was surprised is that often bitterness or frustration is projected onto George in this period. So often, I hear people definitively state that George was done with the Beatles in 1966, or even 64, or 69, when in fact, none of these proved to be true. He wasn't even done with them in 1970 when he said it would be selfish of the Beatles not to continue. And I always wonder, where does everyone think George was going in 1966? Was he going to go solo or join another group? Doubtful. He told us he considered dedicating himself exclusively to the study of the sitar for six years, but dismissed that idea because he would miss his friends too much. Not to mention George didn't show any signs of leaving. And I assume he didn't leave because he was happy with the group a good portion of the time. There is a lot of support for that. After all, the Beatles were his greatest friends and family that he worked with, played with, and practically lived with. Cleve noted the intense closeness of the Beatles and how it was more pronounced than ever in 1966. And Hunter Davies, the next year, described George's attachment to the Beatles as umbilically connected. So perhaps we need to reconsider some of the sweeping generalizations that are made about George's experience and his thoughts on the Beatles. Maybe there were times when George was legitimately frustrated with fame and touring and Beatlemania. And in moments of anger, he said he was done and finished. But I don't think we should conflate moments of frustration and letting off steam with his entire experience. Nor should we apply the bitterness he expressed in the breakup period to his experience as a whole. We should be able to separate his frustration with Beatlemania from his feelings towards the Beatles and the music they were making. Because again, this interview takes place in 1966 and George seems upbeat and open, both about his development as a songwriter, but also about his newfound loves and enthusiasms. The world was open to George and he was doing things he loved. And all of that made me think about how George's entire experience in the Beatles is often framed as a challenging one. And it made me wonder whether that was correct and whether this was even respectful to George. After all, Cleve went to great pains to highlight how formidable George was, how aware of his rights he was, all of which suggests that George had agency. And to suggest that George's whole experience in the Beatles was frustrating or that he was unhappy suggests that George didn't have agency, and he clearly did. This is not to say that he didn't have legitimate issues. Even a casual mention of Lennon and McCartney underscored his separateness from them. But he didn't sound bitter or upset about that in 1966, or even 1967. Instead, he seemed to be open about his own journey as a songwriter, and he admitted his role in his lack of songs on albums. He said he couldn't be bothered. He had other interests. 
And as with Cleve, he told another publication, Beatles Book Monthly, in October 1966, about six months after the Cleve interview, that his main trouble was with the lyrics, that he couldn't quite communicate what he wanted to say. But he also said that John and Paul were open to his ideas. And he said, I quote, I think they welcome my ideas. We put a lot of suggestions in after we've recorded something. That's why we take so long to record a number. We've always cooperated with one another. Further, in this piece, George's commitment to the Beatles comes off as deeply internalized. His casual comment about wanting them all to start swimming for their health rather than just going to clubs reflected his genuine care and consideration for them as a unit, as a group. He wasn't just worried about himself, he was worried about all of them. Further, in this October 1966 interview, when asked if anyone fascinated him, he replied that it was John, Paul, and Ringo. So these three interviews show consistency in George's perspective. And that made me think about the fact that maybe it didn't seem ideal at the time to have been outside of Lennon and McCartney. But I wonder if being outside of an all-consuming partnership like they had gave George the freedom and space to not only develop his own songwriting style at his own pace, but to pursue new passions which were both fundamental to his life going forward and important to the magic and genius of the Beatles. There's no doubt that George was in a complex situation being in a band with Lennon and McCartney, and that had its limitations and frustrations. But at the same time, no one's to blame for this. This is how the band was created. And the important thing is that George created his own fascinating path. And what a path it was. And finally, one more takeaway, and this was a big unlock for me, was viewing George as emotional. This probably should be obvious, but so often George is portrayed as above it all, or on a higher plane, or a man of action who was unconcerned by the trivialities of life. A spiritual superman, if you will, as if his spiritual study made him immune to emotions. I think this view of George was probably inspired by the man himself, because I think his defense mechanism was to withdraw, to deflect, to judge, rather than to admit to himself or others how deeply he felt. He would sometimes say he was above it all or unbothered, yet this might have been a deflection. As he said in 1978, in this wonderful 1978 Men Only magazine interview, it took him a long time to admit the loss of Patty deeply bothered him. I mean, George was a man who was capable of exquisitely beautiful songs, and he invested deeply in his friendships and loves. And he would also have outbursts of bitterness and sourness, all of which reflect that George had emotions and felt deeply. Anyway, those are some pretty deep thoughts from what was essentially a lovely, enjoyable profile on George Harrison in 1966. One thing's for sure, George is a character and I thoroughly enjoyed reading and thinking about him. I hope you did too. Thank you for listening. If you would like to send me any questions or comments about this episode, please do so on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, 
or email us at oncewedreampodcast at gmail.com. If you have any questions you would like to see addressed for future episodes, please feel free to reach out and let me know. I may do an episode where I answer questions. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving it a five-star rating or review as it's hugely appreciated and helpful in terms of promotion of the podcast. And if you'd like to support the podcast, I do have a Patreon account under One Sweet Dream Podcast. And a big shout out and thank you to all my patrons. I sincerely appreciate the support, the feedback, the conversation that happens in our community. So thank you. I guess that's it for now. I will now leave you with Duncan Driver reading through the entire Cleek profile on George Harrison. Take care. Bye-bye. This is the truth about me. George tells everything, but everything, about himself and Patty to Maureen Cleave, Teen Life magazine, December 1966 issue. It is hard to understand why a delightful and original human being such as George Harrison should have left so much fainter an impression on the general public than the three other Beatles. But this, alas, is unaccountably so. George is 23, the youngest and the least well-known. He has not the aggressive self-assertion of John Lennon, nor the pretty innocence and wicked wit of Paul McCartney, nor the extraordinary visual appeal of Rigo. He writes few songs and sings little. He stands in the middle with a vacant smile upon his lips, gazing at the floor and strumming vaguely on his guitar. But there's nothing vague about George. He's alert to everything surrounding him. Good old George is how he used to describe himself. Good old average George, plodding along, a mere morsel. He is the only Beatle with two surviving parents still married to each other. And there is indeed something stable and solid about George. A lot of people like him best because they think wrongly that nobody else does. They feel he has been overlooked. Indeed, one comes across people who suppose that George is stupid and dull. Nothing could be further from the truth. He is strong-willed and uncompromising character with a strict regard for what he considers to be the truth and an even stricter regard for his own rights. I asked to be successful, he said, but I never asked to be famous. I can tell you I got more famous than I wanted to be. I never intended to be the big cheese. There then followed a typical piece of Harrison logic. People keep saying, we made you what you are. Well, I made Mr. Woolworth what he is, and I don't go crawling around over his gates and smashing up the way all around his house. I can't understand some of them being so aggressively bad-mannered. I suppose they feel belittled wanting something from four scruffy louts like us. He likes his views to be known. I want you to be sure and get this bit in my article, he kept saying when I went to see him. He is well informed and thinks more independently than the others. The other Beatles often think he is out on some kind of a limb, but though they laugh at him, they often end up doing the same thing themselves. He was the first to buy his own house, the first to move out of London to the Weybridge area, and the first to become interested in Indian music. He has a poor opinion of television and does not watch television during all its waking hours. He thinks Rolls Royces look dreadful. He is the only one with a practical knowledge of how things work. He can plug in an amplifier without electrocuting himself, and he can drive his Ferrari and arrive at his destination. In some sense, George is the strongest individual of them all. His way of life is different. 
He likes to rise at 10.30, which to the average beetle is the equivalent of the small hours. He has now got hold of the revolutionary idea that the beetles should take exercise. Just swimming, he said hastily, not exercise you'd notice. I want us all to be healthy in that, not going to clubs. George likes to be himself, and he bitterly regrets having abandoned his early habit of eating and sleeping on the stage. We should have stuck out for all that, he said, eating toast and chips and chickens. We only cut our hair and said all the yes sir, no sir, three bags full sir bit to get in. He is also witty. George's critics would do well to remember that the memorable joke from A Hard Day's Night, reporter at a cocktail party, what do you call that hairdo, George? Arthur, was not written by a scriptwriter, it was George's own joke. He lives in Isha with his wife Patty in a large white sunny bungalow surrounded by a lawn and then by a high brick wall. He is a charming host, keen to show you everything. It was part of Queen Victoria's country, Pat, he said with a grand sweep of the arm, and Clive of India had it for a bit. It's a national trust wall. You're not allowed to chop it up or anything. He added poetically that it glowed red in the setting sun. The house is less lavish than the other Beatles' houses, but it has unusual touches, such as a little conservatory full of rare plants that mystify and intrigue George. He spends hours looking at them, worrying about the leaves going brown. He has a housekeeper called Margaret, a Ferrari, two minis, 48 so far unread leather-bound volumes on natural history in French, <laughs> a Sidney Nolan print that he loves, and a music room with tape recorders, a little jukebox and walls covered in guitars. He wears a watch that is the last word in watches. It is elliptical in shape and came in white gold at vast expense from Cartier. The point of it to George is a sophisticated one. It looks like a toy watch, or one of Salvadali's soft watches, he said, flowing all over the place. His acquaintances are as decorative as himself. George and Patty showing their young, long-haired, slender <laughs> friends around the strange pink plants in the conservatory is a happy sight of what would be period charm if it were not for the trouser suits. I want to get the house so that every little bit is pleasing, he said enthusiastically. This, he patted the modern dining room table. This was me two years ago. It'll have to go. The natural thing when you get money is that you acquire taste. I've got a lot of my taste off Patty. You get taste in food as well. Instead of eggs and beans and steak, you branch out into the avocado scene. I never dreamt I would like avocado pears. I thought it was like eating bits of wax, fake pears out of a bowl. When I saw people shoveling it down, now he shoves it down like the rest. He is hospitable, charming, and good company. It is his enthusiasm that is so engaging. You see why they all like George. He is proud of his house, proud of his wife. He and Patty have a very decided sense of style, both about their looks and about their surroundings. In this setting, George cut a curiously elegant dash often in black velvet with his long, thin legs, his cavernous cheeks and his wild head of hair. It was George who got married in a coat of Mongolian lamb, and after the ceremony, they both came home and burnt incense. They are a modish and decorative pair. Patty is deliciously pretty, skinny and dainty with long yellow hair. She is 22, a successful model, and runs her house most capably. There seems to be an inexhaustible supply of pretty boyed girls. Her sister Jenny is a model, and her younger sister Paula is the girl too much in love to eat her shredded wheat. They give every appearance of getting on extremely well together. 
Patty is not only beautiful, she is also a capable and excellent cook. Tuck in, George said in front of one of Patty's dinners. George met Patty two years ago while making a hard day's night. She had other boyfriends. Never thought I'd get her, George said. This is her background, according to him. She was born in Taunton, went to East Africa to live, and came back. I married her, he said, because I loved her and because I was fed up not being married. 22 is the normal age for people to get married. That's when a petrol pump attendant gets married, though he hasn't got all these people looking at him. The great thing about getting married, you see, is that everything's different. Before I used to think, there's Patty cooking my dinner in my pots and pans. Now they're her pots and pans, and this house is a home. We're a match for each other, he went on. People should know everything about each other before they get married. I'd like you to put that in my article. Not almost everything, but really everything. You must spill it out and get it off your chest, like going to the psychiatrist. That's the great thing about a wife, you see. She's your best friend. Running through this uncompromising character is a strong romantic streak. He feels romantic about his wife, and he feels romantic about his music. He says it is his religion, and he worries a great deal about it. He wishes he could write fine songs, as Lennon and McCartney do, but he has difficulty with the words. Paddy keeps asking me to write more beautiful words, he said. He played his newest composition. His own voice came over the tape singing, Love me while you can. Before I'm a dead old man. <laughs> so blunt. Oh, dear. George was aware that these words were not beautiful. <laughs> he has been given Roget's thesaurus to help. I wanted another word for thick, he said. He looked it up and was thrilled <laughs> with a list of synonyms. You have heard the one he used on the LP. Although your mind's opaque, try thinking more, if just for your own sake. He plays the guitar for hours on end, taking it up during conversation like a piece of knitting. When it isn't a guitar, it's the sitar. For George, the instrument of Indian classical music has given new meaning to life. He went to hear Ravi Shankar play in the festival hall. I couldn't believe it, he said. It was just like everything you've ever thought of as great, all coming out at once. He went to India Craft and bought several sitars. Never one to do things by halves, he decided to look exactly as Ravi Shankar did on the album cover. He sat on carpets and twisted his legs round like Ravi did in the picture. His legs went to sleep and when he stood up, he fell over. I wish I could sit on the floor like Ravi, he said earnestly. The instrument is complicated and George's enthusiasm, while it does not increase understanding, is infectious. He insists you count with him the 16 beats in certain passages. He twists his mouth about to sing with the old Indian lady on the record. He has considered going to India for six years to play it properly, but he thinks he would miss his friends. Just before I went to sleep one night, I thought what it would be like to be inside Ravi's sitar. But there is a practical side to George, a side that admits no mysteries, no contradictions in life. He is firm where he believes himself to be right, which is most of the time. Take the war in Vietnam. I think about it every day, he said, and it's wrong. Anything to do with war is wrong. They're all wrapped up in their Nelsons and their Churchills and their Montes, always talking about war heroes. Look at all our yesterdays, how we killed a few more Huns here or there. It makes me sick. They're all the sort of a leaning on their walking sticks and telling us a few years in the army would do us good. The others tease him about his interest in money. If you want to know how much money I've got, Paul asks, ask George. 
he does take a minute interest in what happens to their money and at the moment is particularly incensed about income tax. He is conceivably the first composer to write a song on the subject. <laughs> his views are disconcertingly simple. He thinks that his, George's personal taxes, are going directly to pay for F111s. He sees Mr. Wilson, the Prime Minister of England, as the Sheriff of Nottingham. There he goes, George said bitterly, taking all the money and then moaning about deficits here, deficits there, always moaning about deficits. In fact, he approves of nobody in authority, religious or secular. These people are called Big Cheeses or King Henrys. They should practice what they preach, and according to George, they do not. Take teachers, he said. In every class when I was at school, there was always a little kid who was scruffy and smelly, and the punishment was always to sit next to the smelly kid. Fancy a teacher doing that. It is useless to reason with George on these issues. His mind is made up. His independence seems to have rooted itself at an early age. In the old Liverpool days, he would stand at the bus stop wearing his black leather suit, white cowboy boots, and a very pale pink peaked cap. He would be the only person at the bus stop so dressed. When the bus arrived, he would board it with guitar amplifier and offer a T-chest bass. Personal embarrassment is something he rarely suffers from. And to go on to religion, George said, he was born in the Catholic faith. I think religion falls flat on its face. All this love thy neighbor, but none of them are doing it. How can anybody get themselves into the position of being Pope and accept all the glory and money and the Mercedes Benz and that? I could never be Pope until I'd sold my rich gates and my posh hat. I couldn't sit there with all that money on me and believe I was religious. Why can't we bring all this out in the open? Why is there all this stuff about blasphemy? If Christianity is as good as they say it is, it should stand up to a bit of discussion. He takes up words worthy in view of the evils of urban society and the influences of mass media. Babies, when they are born, George said, are pure. Gradually, they get more impure with all the rubbish being pumped into them by society and television and that, till gradually they're dying off, <laughs> full of everything. <laughs> it was a distressing thought. George, who had concerned himself with this interview so far, grew anxious about the ending. I don't want my article to end up sad, he said. Me in nowhere land, making all my nothing plans for nobody. I don't want the angry young man against the world sort of ending. I'll tell you what I think. The main thing is to have a good time and to do the best you can. Okay, we're the famous Beatles. So what? There are other things apart from being famous Beatles. It's not the living end, is it? On the other hand, I feel I've seen twice as much of life as most people do when they peg out. I'm very pleased that I'm me. Because after all, I could have been somebody else, couldn't I? Somehow, one can always see what George is driving at. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.